Without question, the greatest achievement of Solomon's glorious reign was the construction of the Jerusalem temple. Using plans designed by David and the expertise of Phoenician craftsmen, Solomon brought into being what surely must have been one of the great wonders of ancient architecture. And during the course of building the temple, you remember that God came to Solomon with a great promise, and he did so not directly, but probably, as scholars would agree, maybe even through the prophet Nathan. But God comes to him and makes a promise, uh, an inspiring promise, and that is this that God would confirm the promise that was spoken to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, and number 2, that God would dwell in the midst of his people. You know, no doubt that spurred Solomon on to continue to build as they then attacked the interior portion of the temple. And the Bible would say that it took about seven years for the temple to be built. Next was the dedication of it. And because of its importance in the history of redemption, the sacred historian devotes considerable space to the dedication of Solomon's temple. Thousands of people flocked to Jerusalem to share in this paramount event. Without question, the dedication of Solomon's temple was the grandest ceremony ever performed under the Mosaic dispensation. And the solemn uh, dedicatory transaction consisted of six acts that I have on the board. Number one, it consisted of the procession. Solomon summoned all leaders of the nation to share in the dedication ceremonies. And the first order of business was none other than to transfer the Ark of the Covenant from Mount Zion, and also referred to as the City of David, to its permanent resting place in the Holy of Holies of the Temple on Mount Moriah. Interestingly, a, a, a way of note here is originally the term Zion was restricted to the Jebusite fortress, considered later the city of David, on the southern and lower part of the hill on which the temple was built. In later times, the name Zion denoted the temple hill, and then later the entire city of Jerusalem. But let's just back up a little bit. One of the significant things is, is do you remember... Going back historically, and we studied about how just prior to the time that Abner was killed by Joab. You remember when David and his army was going to come into Jerusalem, and those Jebusites had inhabited that territory. And you remember what David said to his army. He said, and I don't know how many were there that day, or how many of those that would be considered expert uh, military men, but I know one man that was there, and his name was Joab, and Joab listens to what David said, and David said the first man that can go and scale the wall and make his way inside the wall and slay the very first Jebusite, that man would become commander of the entire army. And the Bible says that the one that was successful in doing so was none other than Joab, General Joab, the one that David was absolutely disgusted with just prior to this time when Joab had killed a great man, according to David, a great man named Abner. But it was Joab that scaled the wall. It was Joab that made his way in, and it was Joab that killed the very first Jebusite. Therefore, the armies of God, David's armies, overtook those Jebusites in that territory, and then that territory became known as the city of David. You know, it was there that the ark was. 
but it had to be moved to Moriah. You know, Moriah is also a very interesting name. It's a very interesting place and very significant things by way of Bible history, even in the scheme of redemption, is referred to or mentioned at Mount Moriah. First of all, we find in Genesis chapter 22 an Old Testament story, very old, familiar story. When God says to Abraham, I won't narrate the whole story, just set the stage here. But as God came to Abraham, God said, Take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and take him to the land of Moriah, to a mount that I will tell of thee. The Bible says he rose up early to be about his father's business. He rose up early to do what God had instructed him to do. And he begins a three-day, that's significant too, a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, to the place that God had instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on that altar that day. You remember as they got to the place that Abraham and Isaac were going to depart from the people that were with them, that were traveling along this way with them, and they go and do so. And Isaac is pictured in our mind's eye as the one who's carrying the wood of all things. The one to be sacrificed is carrying the wood that he would be sacrificed on. Interesting, isn't it? He's carrying what he's going to be sacrificed on. He says to his father, he says, Behold the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb? And, God, and Abraham said, God, my son, will provide a lamb. When they got there, we all know the story that Isaac was uh, bound there to that altar, bound there to that wood, and Abraham is about to take his life. God stays the hand of Abraham, and what happened? It was still a place of sacrifice, but the sacrifice was substitutionary. There was a ram that was caught there in the thicket, and it was that ram that was sacrificed on Mount Moriah that day. We learn all the way back to Genesis chapter 22 that in Moriah, that was a place uh, where sacrifice was made and where mercy was shown. All the way back to Genesis chapter 22. We find that Moriah was the place where David built the altar. We find it was also a place where Solomon now has built the temple. We find it a place to be where sacrifice was made and mercy was shown. Now, what's significant to you and I about that is if we keep within the thousand yard mark now, there's something else that's significant, and I think you have to use the thousand-yard mark when it comes to Mount Calvary when Jesus was crucified. But if you figure this, if you figure that he was outside the city, and you figure about a thousand yards, as some historians would say, and Bible scholars, many would agree, that would take you 880 yards is a half of a mile. So another 120 yards past that is about a thousand yards, and it is said that within a thousand yards of that very place on Mount Moriah, Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, a place where sacrifice was made and where mercy was shown. And that sacrifice, too, was substitutionary. God put Jesus on that cross for the sins or allowed Jesus to be crucified on that cross for our sins. The sacrifice was indeed substitutionary for something you and I should have died for within a thousand yards or so. Very significant place, Mount Moriah. Because the temple housed that sacred ark, the newly built temple enjoyed the sanctity 
and national prestige of the sanctuary in Shiloh, which had been destroyed by the Philistines about 145 years earlier. In addition to the princes summoned by Solomon, all the men of Israel also came to Jerusalem to partake in the feast. The priests rather than the Levites were the ones on this occasion that carried the ark of God. You know, we had read uh, on, on times past where the Levites carried the ark. But here it's different. This was a different occasion. This was a much more solemn occasion. In fact, there are other places in the Old Testament under such occasions when the priests would carry the ark and not the Levites. But here it is. The priests are the ones that are carrying the ark of God. The Levites bringing the tabernacle and the furniture of it to this place at the temple. The Levites transported the furniture and made innumerable sacrifices that were offered before the ark, expressing their grateful joy for the temple. The priests then deposited the ark in its assigned place in the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says that it is placed between those two giant cherubim, and it is so big that the wingspan, as they came together, it absolutely engulfed the ark, so much so that it was darkness under it. So the ark of God was placed in darkness where God was going, the name of God was going to be. It was placed in darkness there that day. Then something else. You know, the staves that carried the ark through the rings. Now, I have tried to picture this in my mind, and I really can't totally picture what exactly is happening here. I'll tell you what I've read, and uh, I don't know that that is totally significant in understanding exactly how this looked. But the Bible does say that, so it, does, it is worth our, uh, our mention and our uh, interest. When the ark was placed in its assigned place in the Holy of Holies... Somehow, the Bible says they took the staves and they pulled the staves toward the holy place. Now, we've got the veil there that separated the holy of holies and the holy place. But the Bible says that those staves were pulled somewhat so that someone that's standing on the other side, standing on the holy, of ho uh, the holy place side, could see the staves. Now... Some scholars said what that meant was this, that from time to time on the Day of Atonement when the veil was pulled back for the high priest and only the high priest to pass through, that someone would be able to see the staves on that occasion. Now there's also a Jewish tradition that they, that they say that all this meant was that the staves were pulled to a point where it was kind of protruding, it was right up against a curtain or the veil. You know, you can do that. You can have something on the other side of something and pull it up next to it, and it's kind of pushing its way next to it, and you can see where it was. That's Jewish tradition. What's the answer? I don't know. I just know that for some reason it's in the Bible, and it was significant for some reason. Now, however it was, the ark of God is placed there in the Holy of Holies under the two giant wings of those cherubim. Now, at the time the ark was placed in the temple, it contained only the tables of stone, it says, in our narrative, which was put there by Moses at Horeb, chapter 8 and verse 9. The golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod, as described in Hebrews 9 and 4, 
probably had been removed by the Philistines when they had temporarily possessed the ark, 1 Samuel 6 and verse 19. And so as the priests withdrew from the Holy of Holies, the Bible says that the singers and trumpeters began their service of praise. Now picture this. They begin their service of praise. And at that very exact moment, the cloud, which was indicative of the divine presence of God, filled the house of the Lord as it did in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. And because of this great cloud, the priests for a time could not continue along in their ministrations, verses 10 and 11. As Solomon witnessed this divine manifestation, he was stirred to the very depths of his being, and that glorious cloud proved that his work of piety had been accepted in the eyes of God. And Solomon could only turn his eyes heavenward and utter a prayer of declaration in which he reaffirmed his purpose in building the ark. The structure was intended to be a house for God, in contrast to the portable shrine of the tabernacle, chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13. And so he begins with the declaration. Solomon now, you can just imagine, is moved. Anytime we do something that we think God is pleased with, we are happy about that. Anytime we stand up for what is right, we are happy about that. Every time we preach the gospel and some lost soul is saved and God gets the glory, we're happy about that. And we know that when we take this book and we follow the things that are found in this book, we know that God is pleased. Now, we don't take the credit for that. We don't take the glory for that. We don't take the praise for that. But make no mistake, it causes us to feel good. And so when we feel good, we rejoice. And the very best thing to do when we do something that God has instructed us to do is give Him the praise, give Him the glory, give Him the honor, and celebrate that way in our hearts. And certainly not because of our own goodness and our own greatness. You could just imagine, I don't know how much time had passed from the time that the ark of God was sitting right there under the cherubim and the singers and the trumpeters began to play and they began to rejoice and they began to celebrate and all of that, that the cloud is now full showing the presence of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God and the fullness of God at that place. Solomon is absolutely overwhelmed. And he turns to the assembly you know, maybe he gestures to them to stand up in respect at that time. He greets the people. He addresses them. And the first thing that he does is he prays God for bringing to pass what he had spoken through Nathan the prophet. Then Solomon enumerated the circumstances which led to building the temple. Here were the circumstances. Number one, God had selected David to rule Israel. Number two, David desired to build the temple, and God approved that desire. You know, just because God did not, did not allow David to build the temple does not mean that God didn't approve of David's desire to build the temple because God did approve of his desire to do so. Of all the things that we would do for God, our desire to do so is always good. But God had other plans. God was not going to allow David to have the honor of doing so. That would come to someone else. But he did, and Solomon points out that God accepted and God allowed and God approved 
of David's desire. But nevertheless, God decreed that David's son would have the honor of building the temple or being the temple builder. And finally, that the Lord had raised up Solomon and had aided him in building the temple which was resting which was the resting place for the ark. You know when we talk about in Philippians chapter 4 a pattern for prayer? Do you see the pattern? Where does Solomon begin? When Paul said this in Philippians 4, when he says, Be careful for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That word prayer means adoration. That's where he begins. When we pray to God, we do so reverently. You know what's, well, I don't know a better word than just disgusting to me, is when people in the world speak about God or to God in a disrespectful manner. Thinking about what God can do to them. Thinking about what God can do to everyone. Thinking about the price that was paid for our salvation and all we have to do is obey Him. And thinking about how powerful God is and how disrespectful sometimes people are regarding their language about God, using His name, His great name, and doing so in vain. Oh, we, we must speak the, the name of God. We just must do it reverently, respectfully, and in the right manner. He begins in a prayer of adoration. Solomon began his prayer by standing on a bronze platform in the courtyard of the temple. You know, there's a corresponding passage, and you'll find that in 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 13, where 1 Kings does not point that out. His hands, no doubt, were spread before the heavens in a gesture of supplication. He declared that no God on earth can be compared to you. You know, Solomon wasn't saying there's many gods. He was recognizing that the world recognizes many false gods. And what he was saying is, of all of man's quote-unquote false gods, you are greater than every one of them. They're all fake. They're all false. They're all imitation. You're the only one. You're greater than all of them. And he tells them why. He says, because you keep your covenantal promise. You keep your promise. Solomon said, you're the greatest. You're greater than any being in the world. You're greater than all, the, all of man's false gods and concepts because you keep your word and you keep your promise. Secondly, you show mercy to those that do their very best to keep the covenant. Now, those are amazing things. In the world of all of the idol gods at that time and all the idol gods throughout history, you're greater than every one of them because you can do what no false god can do. You can keep your word. We can trust in you. We can know that what you say is true. And secondly, you show mercy where no other one could do. A prayer of adoration, taking the time and spending the time to talk about how great the great God of heaven really is. I think we need to spend a lot of time in doing that. Many of you have heard my sermon on Jonah. You know, in the second chapter, that was a desperate man. Can you imagine a desperate man any more desperate than a man that was in, the, in, in a great fish belly for three days? In the stench, in the stink of that, not knowing what was going to happen to him? 
You think he was desperate? I think he was the most desperate man alive at that point. And all the things that he had to do, what's he going to do? You know what he does? He spends the time in adoration to God. Read the second chapter of Jonah in your own free time, and you'll find it reads more like a psalm. It reads like a song, a, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. We spend a lot of time sometimes asking God for things, and maybe not enough time praising Him and thanking Him for what He's already done. But next, though. In this prayer, there is supplication, and there is a time when we pour our hearts out to God. There is a time, but sometimes what we do is we just pray and ask for relief for something, or we just pray and ask for whatever it is that we want, and we forget the adoration part. We forget reverently speaking to Him. And you know, we've all kind of brushed through a prayer quickly. We can all get better about that, especially when we're in our private times when we have an opportunity to bow the knee before God and talk to God, we could spend time in praise and adoration to Him first and then get to our supplications and what it is that we would request from God. The second part of Solomon's prayer was just that, the supplications. Solomon presented his supplications before the Lord, and in these he details seven specific situations which could be expected to arise in the future, and it is under the idea of if and then framework. In other words, these are possible things that could happen, and this is what he's asking of God. These are the things after he tells God how great God is and praises him for all that he is, all that he is there are seven specific things about if this happens, then will you please do this? And these are the seven things. I've summarized them. Uh, and and uh, I've taken them from the text. I've summarized them. I'll read them quickly to you. Here are the seven things that he asks for. Seven petitions. One, may God hear every oath taken before the temple altar and then intervene to punish the guilty and justify the innocent. Number two, after military defeat... May God restore to Israel those who might have been carried away captive. Number three, may God hear the penitent prayers of his people when they had been chastised by drought. Number four, in the midst of plagues, may God listen to the cries of his people. Number five, may God hear the prayers of any foreigners who might come to the temple to pray. Number six, may God hear those who were fighting wars far removed from Jerusalem who might address their petitions toward the temple. And finally, number seven, in his last petition, Solomon contemplated the captivity of Israel and he prayed that God might intervene on behalf of his people when they finally come to their senses and when they finally would repent. These are the seven specific things that he asks of God in the second part of his prayer, and that being the prayer of supplications, asking God these seven things. But you know, at the conclusion of his prayer, Solomon rose up from his knees. Now, the Bible doesn't say he bowed before he started praying. Maybe he was so engrossed in this prayer. Maybe it was such a heartfelt prayer. He's pouring his heart out. Maybe he started in an upright position. 
it kind of alludes to the fact that, he, that they all stood. So here's all these people, perhaps, standing. And here he is in this posture of prayer, praying to God. And about that time, as he's pouring his heart out, maybe it's just then that he slumps down to his knees because when he gets to this part, the Bible says he stands up. He stands up and rises to his feet from his knees. And with his hands spread toward heaven, he blesses the congregation. King Solomon summed up his wishes for the good of his kingdom in three ways. First, he prayed that God might choose to teach Israel his commandments by positive guidance rather than through divine discipline. Secondly, he prayed that God might incline their hearts toward the Lord so that they might obey his commandments. And number three, he prayed that the words of this prayer might ever be before the Lord that he might execute justice on behalf of both the king and his people. And finally, that Israel would be so blessed of God that all the people of the earth would recognize that he alone was God. Wouldn't it be great if we prayed that? To ask for God's blessings that all would know, especially spiritually speaking, that all would know that he is God. Every time a Christian does what the book says, God gets the praise and God gets the glory. Every time we can, we can reduce it like this. Every time that we behave ourselves in the proper way in the workforce and people see that and they know that the reason for that is not because we walk around like we're great, but because we profess to be Christians, God gets the glory and God gets the praise. Even the Bible would talk about a married couple, and it would talk about a wife, and the wife would have to uh, do the right things to her non-believing husband in terms of being the right kind of wife. And just maybe when the word had not turned his heart in days past, just maybe when he finds out that the reason she's the wife that she is is because she's a Christian, just maybe by that it might soften his heart to obey. Powerful things. But when Solomon concluded his prayer with a brief exhortation that the people continued to demonstrate the piety and the loyalty to God which they had demonstrated in building the temple for seven years, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1, at that very moment, fire from heaven came down and consumed the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. We can imagine such a celebration that took place. The king and his people celebrated. They celebrated about the dedication of the temple with an enormous sacrifice. Those worshipers joined Solomon in a seven-day feast of dedication, which was in turn followed by seven days or the seven-day feast of tabernacles, 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 9. And finally, Solomon dismisses the multitude and the crowd reciprocated by saluting their king. And the next morning, the Bible says, the people departed for their tents of dwellings, full of joy because of what the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 10. But finally, after Solomon had completed his building projects, God appears to him a second time, this time directly. 
And he appears to him in the same way that he did so in a dream at Gibeon. Solomon was now at the height of prosperity. With all the building projects completed, completed now, the king's heart was puffed up with pride. Isn't that easy to do? To get filled with pride? No wonder the Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a hearty spirit before fall. Think about things that we could handle better were it not for pride. Think of things we've been confronted with in days gone by that would have gone so much better if we were not filled with pride. Brian and I were talking today about the very idea of people that make mistakes, for example, in professional sports. And how it is that people have a hard time just saying, it was my fault. Using the proverbial expression, falling on your own sword, taking the blame in a team sport. But what happens is, with a world of individuals puffed up with pride, is we find that the hardest thing sometimes to do is to be Humble in all that we do and have humility in our heart and have that humility be that which is guiding us. One of the hardest things in the world to do, I know it, been married 18 years, is to say sorry to your wife when you're mad. That's a hard one. You got to swallow that one. That's a hard one. When you're mad. Because when you're mad... That's when your heart's filled with things that shouldn't be. And usually when you come to your senses, it's when you stop being mad. No wonder the Bible says be angry and sin not. You know why? Because when you're angry, it's easy to sin. That's the next step. Jesus proved, though, that we can be that, though, and not sin. When he overturned the tables of the money changers, Jesus was furious. But there was never any sin found in Jesus, in his life, in anything that he ever said, anything that he ever did, anything that he ever thought. Never once was Jesus filled with sinful pride. Well, you can just picture Solomon's feeling pretty good about now. Not only can he look to the work that he had led, not only can he look that the wisdom and the decisions that he made were good from a construction standpoint, not only all of that, but even in the midst of all the people, in front of all the people, God showed that he accepted what he had done. And I would imagine that Solomon started to feel pretty good about himself in the height of his prosperity. With his building projects completed, the king's heart began to be puffed up with pride. And you know what was sad is his love for the Lord began to wane. He had begun that spiritual decline which eventually led to idolatry. This divine word served to remind Solomon. God is reminding Solomon of the wonderful prayer and youthful devotion which he was in danger of losing. A little reminder. The Lord made three points to him. Number one, the Lord says that he pledges himself to hear the prayer of the penitent. I'm still going to do that. He pledges himself, the Lord said, I will hear the prayer of the penitent. Secondly, God assures Solomon that he had chosen and consecrated the temple. And thirdly, he reminded Solomon 
of the conditional promise made to his father, David. You know what's just jumping off the page to us right now? God's doing what he said. God's going to continue to do what he said. God has not rejected anything from any man up until this point of anyone that was doing what God had instructed him to do. God is doing his part. If that is not a, a picture of people that are promised salvation through the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ and how they only have it when number three kicks in, the conditional part, you know what he says? He says, I'm still God. I'm still going to promise to you what I said I was going to do. I'm going to do. But remember this. The promise to David was conditional. And that was this. If the descendants were obedient to the Lord, if David's descendants were obedient to the Lord, then and only then would David's sons continue to occupy the throne in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 7, 12-18. The warnings against unfaithfulness here to Solomon are stern and uncompromising. If Solomon or any of his children turned from following God, then God would deprive the nation of the land he had given them. And furthermore, the Lord would utterly reject the temple which he had so recently acknowledged. Look how he went. Look at the progression of his life. A man that demonstrated wisdom before God gave him the supernatural endowment of it. A man that was, had humility in his heart. He calls himself, now picture this, he goes from calling himself a child, meaning ill-equipped. I am ill-equipped to be the king. I need your help. Wouldn't it be great if he would have kept the same heart? Wouldn't it have been great if King Saul would have kept the same heart? But something seems to happen in time because of our successes we tend to forget. He goes from a man that was wise by the question that he asked or by the request that he asked of God for wisdom, an understanding, discerning heart that he would be able to better serve God and his people. So he gets wisdom. He gets riches un unnumbered. He gets honor among men. He gets a long life conditional on living according to the statutes of his father David. He goes from a wise man, so wise that no one was ever more wise. He goes and he builds the great work, the great work of his life. God accepts the great work of his life. God is pleased with his work. And we find, as Bob mentioned, I think it was last Sunday evening or maybe the one before, he talked about how Solomon falls. Solomon now is going to go from glory to shame. What makes a man's heart go in an opposite direction of God? I know one thing. Anybody, anybody can fall. I don't care who you are. And the Bible is clear that when we go to try to help somebody to restore them when they've fallen, we better take some serious stock in our life too. We better consider ourselves too, and we better never have the attitude it could never happen to me. You know, if we just have that attitude, 
If I go to Ryan and I say, you know, man, I can't believe Ryan. That was just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I can't believe he did that. And Ryan is in a sin. And I have the attitude like I am better than Ryan. I am no different. Get this. I am no different than the Pharisee that Jesus said when he left there, he left with his sin too. He was not justified. I'm the same way. Anybody, anybody can fall. And I'll tell you something, usually we fall when we're not spending enough time occupying our minds and our lives and our activities with spiritual things. We need God's people. We need God's word. We need to worship God. We need to be built up together. We need that. I appreciated what Daryl said so much about the congregation here. One of the things in my short so-called career preaching of going around, I don't know, 30 or 40 meetings that I've held. One of the things that I have seen is when you go different places, uh, not everybody has congregational teachers that can stand up and edify the body of Christ. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. More, there are more congregations that don't than those that do. Singing. We've got, as Daryl pointed out, we've got capable song leaders that are just do a marvelous job. And I tell you, we have great people here too. We need to spend time together. We need to encourage one another. And we can grow together. One of the greatest things, though, that Daryl said about this congregation this morning was, we are at peace. And brother, that is huge. He read a passage about eschewing, the King James Version says, evil, and ensue peace. We have to pursue it. I think we do that here. Sometimes when we get in the pulpit, we just correct things, and, and we need to admonish. That's true. We need to preach about, about things. But sometimes we need to encourage each other, too. That's why I appreciated his remarks this morning so much. Encourage one another with these words, and let's work together, and we can grow. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.